Welcome back to the Inside Sports Nutrition Podcast, your source for all things sports nutrition related. My name is Dina Griffin, co-host of the show, and I'm joined as always by my co-host Bob Sibahar. In case you're new to the show, we are both registered dietitians and board certified specialists in sports dietetics with combined professional experience exceeding 40 years. Our mission here is to provide translations of nutrition and sports science to real life, give you interviews with a variety of experts and athletes where you enhance your knowledge, and hopefully bring a great nutrition conversation to you each week. So in today's episode number 82, we are sitting down with Andy Blow, who is a returning guest on the show. He is the co-founder of Precision Fuel and Hydration and a well-studied expert sport scientist, especially in the realm of hydration and sweat science. So in today's conversation, we talk about the wearable sensors that are emerging on the scene that are trying to monitor our sweat rates and sodium composition and sweat. Are we there yet with the technology? He will present uh, some of his recent experiments and with his team, what they are finding with the sensors. And then we also talk about a recent scientific paper that was released in 2022 The link for that will be in the show notes, Uh, but it basically proposes a mathematical model for determining whether athletes should pursue sweat composition testing, have a targeted hydration and sodium replenishment plan, or maybe just go by taste preference. So we talk about a little bit of that science and the modeling technique that was discussed in that paper. If you're not into the science, it's still a very interesting conversation. I encourage you to hang in there for this one. It is always a fascinating conversation with Andy and for him to share his knowledge with us. Lastly, we do talk about heat stress since uh, as we're in the Northern Hemisphere, at least we are over here in Colorado, a lot of us are in the hot summer dog days. Uh, so we're, we're sweating buckets and we want to know who is at risk for heat stress and maybe some things to keep our eyes on. So listeners, thank you so much for being with us here for this episode 82. And now we will get to the show. Right. We are joined today by one of my personal favorite hydration experts in the world and sports scientists, exercise physiologists, gurus in the hydration and fueling realm, Andy Blow from the Precision Fuel and Hydration Company. Welcome, Andy, back to our show. You are our first returning guest, and so we are extra delighted to have you back on the pod. Yeah, thank you very much. Always good to be chatting with you guys. You awesome. know, that's huge, dude. With him being our first returning guest, I feel like we need to give something away or something. I don't know. I don't know what it is, but you know, I know. Let's think. Let's think <laughs> about that because this is big time for us. You know, <laughs> we will. We will figure out a trophy to send you over there in uh, across the pond, Andy. <laughs> it will be displayed in pride in our office. <laughs> Great. Well, I know it's afternoon for you, morning for us, and uh, I uh, I started my day off with some with some great hydration here in my bottle. But um, 
wanted to check in with you since we last visited nearly a year ago now and just in the field and science of hydration, are there some exciting areas on the the science radar for you and things that you guys have been looking at from a company perspective or just science and research perspective? Any updates or things that are on the radar? Yeah, I think there has been quite a lot of stuff going on in, in the space in general since we last chatted. One of the biggest things, which I know you guys wanted to talk about a little bit and we can get into in more detail, is that there have been quite a few wearable sweat sensors which have hit the market or are either in full kind of retail form or some of them are being released into small test groups and that kind of thing. So there's been a lot of chat in that space for a lot of years and now it's it feels like we're at the point when devices are starting to get released and so people are using them we're certainly fielding a lot of questions from people who have got access to wearable sweat sensors and so we've been doing a fair bit of our own kind of research in-house getting hold of sensors uh, doing some controlled testing, comparing the results of sweat testing in exercise with sweat testing that, that we do, you know, the kind of uh, the, the static lab based type stuff. So that's that's been keeping us busy. Um, another thing that we've been doing is we've we've started in the last 12 months um, co-funding a PhD student at a university in the UK. So um, we've we found uh, well, we were approached by a university that wanted to. Um, look into doing some research into hydration, specifically looking at um, sort of long duration exercise in the heat and looking at sodium deficits and looking at some of the mathematical models that have been proposed around that. Because one of the criticisms of research around hydration for ultra endurance athletes has been that a lot of the lab studies look at, say, time trial performance over an hour or two and that sort of thing. And you guys, same as us, we end up working with athletes, loads of athletes whose events last eight, nine, 10, 12, even 20 hours. And, and so although we're not able to do yet, able to do kind of nine, 10, 11 hour studies in the lab, we have got a study which is just starting up. It's in the pilot phase at the moment, which is going to look at four hours of exercise in really quite hot conditions uh, under heavy load with a time trial element at the end and looking at blood volume, looking at um, different levels of hydration and sodium replacement to sort of try and assess what happens when you really do put people under pressure and they get them to exercise hard in the heat. So that's, that's very, that's very cool and very interesting. And apart from that, we've just been um, rumbling along, you know, working with more athletes. We've started, we've started working with the Lotto Destiny pro cycling team as, a, as an official partner of the team. And that has been an absolutely fascinating experience because although we've worked with individual cyclists and, and in a small way, we've worked with teams in the peloton, these guys and girls have given us full access because they want us to work with the performance team on their side. So we've been going to races, we've been going to training camps we've been you know developing products with them and it's that's been very cool so it's been a busy it's been a busy year that's awesome andy like yeah the research the um in the field application and um, development helping so many athletes but especially the high performing cyclists that's so exciting um, could you take us into the world of the sensors? Because that's a question that both Bob and I get often. Like, 
the ability to more real time figure out what our our fluid losses are or what is in our sweat. I think there's still a lot of confusion. Like, is this technology there even? So I feel like to even just the notion, like, what are these sensors? Do they do they go on our arms or on our backs? Where what are these things? Yeah, they look like yeah. Well, yeah. At, at the moment, there's they're probably there, there are more than this, but the major sensors that people might have heard of. There's one been launched in the US called the Nix sensor, which is a biosensor that you stick on your arm and it monitors your sweat rate and your sodium loss or electrolyte loss in real time. Um, we've got we're working with a UK startup. Um, or and, and assisting a startup called Flow Bio, who are doing a very similar sort of thing. So, they their device isn't open to the isn't available commercially yet, but they have working prototypes, lots of them that that are being tested, and we're one of the people that are involved with that testing. There's obviously the Gatorade patch. I don't know whether we talked about that last time, but that's kind of been out for a while now, and there's mm-hmm. a not not quite in the same vein in that that is a is a wearable patch that uses colorimetry and use a smartphone so it's not giving you it doesn't beam it's not using bluetooth or anything to give you real-time data but it gives you immediate feedback on an app after an exercise session mm-hmm. um there's a, there's a company a very uh, there's a small startup uh, a place called um uh, out of arkansas called hdrop who have made a sensor that also straps onto your arm which is, and they're now just releasing like a second version of theirs that's commercially available. And um, they're doing a good job with, you know, starting to to work out sweat rates and, and sodium loss in, in real time. So kind of app-based one as well. So predominantly they're the ones that we've been testing. So what we've, what we've done in-house is obviously we have our precision hydration advanced sweat test, which is based on the polycarpine at rest um sweat tests used in cystic fibrosis is well validated in that field it's been around a very long time we're very confident with it because it gives very repeatable reliable results um interestingly just as a digression we've often been challenged on does the sweat you get from the polycarpine induced test replicate what you get during exercise so we we're halfway through uh, collecting a large data set on basically measuring people's sweat from their forearm by, via pilocarpine antifresis and then getting them to do three bouts of exercise, one at a very low intensity, one at kind of a moderate intensity and one at a very high intensity, similar to what, similar to their sort of FTP type intensity mm. on the bike. And we've been collecting sweat from exactly the same place on the forearm mm. and then measuring the sweat composition in all of those three conditions, because there is a theory that there have been some papers published that have shown when you sweat more slowly, your body reabsorbs more sodium. When you sweat faster, you lose more sodium. Um, really, the question was then, is the, how much of a difference is there? And does that mean that, how, how does that um, indicate whether you could transfer the results from a polycarpine test onto a, um, a, a real world athletic, you know, mm-hmm. So what we've learned from our data set initially is that the the sweat, which is collected at a higher intensity, tends to replicate what you get from the pilocarpine test in the vast, vast majority of people, almost everyone that we've tested, in fact. And we think that's because when you sweat 
when the when you stimulate the sweat glands with pilocarpine, you're giving them a quite a, a stimulus similar to the the level of stimulus you get at close to a maximal sweat rate. So, in other words, when you sweat fast and when you sweat in doing an intense athletic activity, the sweat that comes out of you stimulated by pilocarpine is a very similar mm. composition of sweat. When you sweat very slowly because you're exercising very moderately it might be that your sweat is a little bit more dilute and we're looking to quantify what that difference is it doesn't seem to be a huge difference but it would be significant difference so that's interesting because then you yeah. could base it on the athlete too right if they're ultra if they're you know kind of shorter endurance that would be really fascinating to see those differences we can't wait to hear about those for sure yeah. And I think that what will happen in the future is some of that will get understood and validated in the field when these wearable sweat sensors are more mm-hmm. alive. You'll get loads and loads of data points on the on the same people. Yeah, so sure. so that, we've been running that in parallel. But what that's allowed us to do, basically the protocol we've been using to validate these sweat sensors has been really simple. We've just had a bunch of the same people coming in, sitting on a on an indoor bike at a comfortable power output that they can hold the same power output they can hold for one hour. They do a 10 minute warm up. They strap all of the sensors on at, at the same time. They do a polycarpine sweat test on the same yeah. day as well. And then we just me- and then we just measure all that sweat and see. And we also weigh the person before and after that bout of exercise to make sure that it's, you know, that the sweat rates that are coming out of the sensors have something to be validated against as well. Now, what we're finding so far, and I, I'll, I'll probably, well, I will talk more generically than specifically because we are looking at the data at the moment and I need to, we need to draw firmer conclusions on each device individually. But in general, it seems like some of the sensors are getting reasonably good at picking up um, sweat sodium loss in terms of at least, if not being completely consistent with the methodology we use then being in the same zone in the same ballpark and we've all talked previously about the fact that actually sweat electrolyte loss is not something you need to be excessively accurate about actually you just need to be close you need to kind of know whether it's a low amount a moderate amount a higher or very high the more the more accurate the more granular you can be the better to a degree but this isn't this is if you're measuring a football field you don't need to, it doesn't need to be within a millimeter you know it would be bad if it was 10 yards out but if it's within probably at most levels within half a yard then it's good enough you can play football on it you know mm-hmm. but sodium measurement is kind of one of those where actually being roughly in the right ballpark is good enough so there's a lot of promise there i think with this these devices returning a good sweat sodium result and it does vary from device to device and from mm. part to body part. Some of it also, I think, varies based on the algorithm that the software that's interpreting whatever's coming out of the device is using because we don't have access to the raw output from the device. Mm. We're using these devices like a consumer would, so we have to see what they put out. So we're a bit limited by what the companies can tell us the algorithm does. So we don't know whether their raw data is really good and their algorithm's not very good or or what but that is not then they're not brilliant but they're not showing um numbers that are really really all over the map you know for instance my tests my own individual tests i can speak for have been reasonably consistent with each device which is a good sign i think you know that you're 
because we're doing everything controlled, you know, the temperature's pretty controlled, the intensity's very controlled, the duration's very controlled, the time of day is pretty controlled. So we are we should be seeing a level of consistency with those, and no. we are. What we're seeing with the sweat rate coming out of these devices is not very good though, in general. Mm. So, and I think that's because that's a really big challenge because you're looking at a small surface area of the body, like the size, probably the size of like a couple of um, coins, like quarter size coins or something like that, maybe even smaller with some of them. And then they're trying to work out from sweat that's leaving that area, what your total body sweat rate is. So we've been seeing some really bad underestimates in a lot of cases. Let actually look eyeballing the data. It looks like way more underestimates than overestimates, but to the point where one or two of the devices have been giving us sweat rates that are 50 or 60% less than what we're measuring on the scales. Wow. And we're confident, obviously, that what we're measuring on the scales is reasonably accurate because that's a, that's a super repeatable and right. simple. There's no vagueness in that. If you get off that bike and you're weighing two kilograms less, then you have lost about two liters of sweat, you know? Yeah. Uh, and when, when the device then tells you that your sweat rate was one liter per hour, that's concerning because the bad data like that given to the athlete is worse in my opinion than not mm -hmm. having data. Because if you're so using what you drink, that's, that's not very useful. Yeah. Andy, I'm thinking about like the usefulness, like all, of all these wearables now and you know, I'm thinking from the athlete perspective and even, you know, what we all do with consulting athletes too, how, how efficacious is it for an athlete to say, you know, go to Dina and get the sweat concentration test done, which is using your device, the pilocarpine and <clears throat> having that data in, you know, doing some sweat rate testing pre and post you weigh yourself new before and after workout, all that, like we always have done, right. How useful is it to, in your opinion, right, professional opinion, to actually make the move or even not look at that uh, static test that, again, we've, we've all done with the with the testing kit and just go right to the wearables? Like, to me, it almost sounds a little bit, a little bit iffy, like we don't have a lot of great data just for me to say, hey, athlete X, I want you to go wear this, you know, wearable, and that's going to give us all the information we need. Like, it doesn't seem like we're there yet for athletes to make that jump to actually put a lot of confidence into wearing these wearables every single training session. What is, what's your take on that? Yeah, I would completely agree. We're definitely not there yet. There's no single one of these devices that I would confidently say, yeah, yep, yeah, strap this on, go do it. And, you know, bring me the data and we'll, we'll sort of, we'll sit back and use that. If we mm -hmm. want to work with an athlete and understand if they're in a, in a, in a if they're in a situation where we feel like their hydration is going to be a big part of the nutrition puzzle for them, then I want to know what they weigh before and after some key workouts, maybe even ideally before and after some small races and also what their sweat composition is. And I'd feel way more confident in taking that information and helping them build out a plan rather than relying on the vagaries of what these devices are currently saying. I do mm -hmm. think the devices, I'm an optimist and a, and a realist, I think, with the devices in that I'm optimistic that they will get there and they will be better than what we currently do at the moment, because ultimately specific data gathered in the field when you're doing a specific activity in wearing the right clothes, they're not, all, all of that specificity is way better. So when we get mm -hmm. to and these devices work as they, sh as they should or as they claim to, then we will be in a better position than taking a snapshot and then extrapolating it. 
That's that's for sure. The realist part of me is that we're not there yet. It's going to take a lot longer to get there, and that I I'm I don't know whether on an individual level it annoys me that companies release stuff early and make bold claims about it, which they can't necessarily back up, you know, in terms of the efficacy of it. But mm-hmm. I also understand that if you want to make progress and go forward, you kind of have to have people who are willing to stick their neck out, you know, get things wrong and then be challenged. So there's a fine line there. Like you you have to release stuff at some point and you have to get loads of people using it to get feedback. And part of that feedback, honestly, is is like, in a capitalist world, you put stuff out there. Will people buy it? Will people buy it? Come back mm-hmm. and buy it again. You know, the V1 of most technological products is often pretty shoddy and right. then it gets better. So, you know, I, I'm all for like getting people using these things. I don't like the overselling of the, the concept in a few years. I think we'll be there. If you really fast forward to the future, what do I think? might be useful well i don't think it should require an athlete to strap on an extra device because Mm. that's annoying and i think that's a big barrier so i think people will find ways of incorporating it into a heart rate strap or a Mm. a, 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 at the back of a watch or something like that you know um then you're way more likely to use it because you're probably going to wear a watch and maybe a heart rate strap anyway right that would be really useful um I think then you'd see wider adoption. I think also you'd this isn't like heart rate or pace or power or something that you that in my opinion you you need data on like all the time in real time. I think the companies that are doing these sensors are very focused on that as a feature because they're looking at it quite myopically around this is like this is what we can measure and what we want to this is our metric. So we're going to put it center. Whereas for the for the athlete you you would want something i think which sits a bit more in the background as a someone working with athletes i'd be more interested in looking at what their sweat rate and sodium composition and hydration status was doing over the course of an entire race in the post analysis but i don't necessarily think that's information that they want to have in real time it might be that there's some things that we learn that you can tell for example you know Sweat rates obviously deteriorate with increasing dehydration as the body tries to conserve a bit more fluid. Like, is if we could get to the point where you could develop an algorithm that's reading sweat rate continuously that starts to give an athlete an early warning of the fact that they're getting a little bit too dehydrated. Assuming that information is reliable, then I absolutely think it would be a good idea for your watch to tell you that you needed to drink more or should think about drinking more at that point. But at the moment, they're being overly ambitious with how much they want to control your instinct to drink or not, or what to drink or whatever. You know, some of the suggestions from the apps and these devices are very highly specific. And I think they don't, they're like, um, you know, the the Dunning-Kruger curve, if Mm -hmm. you ever psychology of like where where on on the far left you've got people with very very high confidence because their knowledge is so low they don't know what they don't know and then as you get better at understand like these devices are far on the left of the Dunning-Kruger curve at the moment because they're looking at one thing and and telling you they know what you should do whereas we know that the you know the the picture around when to drink how much to drink what to drink in exercise is a little bit more complicated than that and the deeper you get into that, you, the more, the less confidence you have in your ability to tell people what to do because you realize there's a lot of things that you don't know. 
Right. Yeah. Right. So it sounds, yeah, yeah. It's, it sounds like from, from what you're saying, we're probably still a few years out here before to, to, in, until we have complete confidence that these wearables will give us all of the information, well, maybe not all, but the, the data that we require to be successful practitioners and athletes. Um, that's kind of what I'm hearing, but it is an exciting time because, you know, I mean, for you, you get to test all these, these cool gadgets. Um, you know, we, we've done that in the past, not with these types, but it, it's kind of fun saying, oh no, I mean, this one has about, you know, maybe five or 10 more years and this one, oh, maybe right around the corner, we might have something here, right? It's kind of, it's kind of neat to be part of. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, that, and what I want to be clear about is that, you know, although there is an element of negativity probably coming from me around the devices right now, that's not to be critical of, of them. And, you know, it, it's just, it's just to be real with people and say, this is where I feel like they're at at the moment. And I, I do think they'll get there. And I think it will be very cool when they do. And hopefully what happens is the pressure from, intelligent people using them on mass in the field feeds back to companies and then come like look how how that look look how like when when you had the first garmin gps mm -hmm. whatever and how big it was and the kind of data you could get out of it and how they didn't they didn't have a good out algorithm for open water swimming so they you had to wear it under your swimming hat if you wanted mm -hmm. to trade and then they've done some incredible stuff now that when i put my my watch on and go for an open water swim in good conditions i get what appears to be a super accurate trace of where I've been and that kind of thing. And that's, that's really clever. And that shows me, you know, how these things can develop and become more useful over time. But at the moment, I th it kind of is a bit like, the, you know, these things are like a GPS watch for running yeah. and swimming. And so you just get, you don't get great stuff out all the time. It's a good, it's a good analogy for sure. I love it. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to set this one up because this is literally <laughs> all of us have gotten this question. Probably. I mean, I'm going to over-exaggerate, but every single day of our career, right. It seems like this question get, gets asked, do I need to take additional sodium during training? And this is what I'm going to set up for you, Andy, because I just wanted to, I just totally dive into this because there was a paper that came out in the European journal of sports science in 2022 and here's the title of it, Modeling Sodium Requirements of Athletes Across a Variety of Exercise Scenarios, Identifying When to Test and Target or Season to Taste. So the author is Alan McCubbin, and this has created a little bit of a, I'm, I'm going to say it, a little bit of a stir, right, in the, in the sport nutrition world, because now from what I understand, and I want you, obviously, as the expert to really talk us through, but what I understand is it's almost like a like a flow chart scenario where, okay, do I need sodium? Okay, well, how long are you exercising? How much do you sweat? What is your sweat rate? Um, how much are you replacing in terms of what you're sweating? And then it seems like the end of the flow chart is, okay, well, what's your sweat sodium concentration? I mean, personally, I think I would move that up a little bit, but this is, like I said, it's created a little bit of a stir. It's, it's an out, or I, I guess, I mean, would you call it an algorithm? What would you like? Let's mathematical model more so. Like, what is going on with this? What do we need to know? You know, do athletes actually need to read this research? Do they need to completely say, oh, wait a second, maybe I don't need sodium now during exercise? Talk us through it. Did I set you up for that one? Yeah, that's all good. It is. All yeah, right. it's in in our small niche within a niche within a niche of the industry. It's definitely a paper yeah. that at least five people are talking about. So yeah. <laughs> well, plus two, Dina and I. So there's seven. <laughs> no, no, in all 
Yes, it is. It's it's an interesting topic. And what the what the the idea behind it is really sound. It was like trying to trying to use a mathematical model that looks at how because main so when you when you're drinking when you're sweating and drinking during exercise one of the things one of the most important things your body's trying to do is maintain plasma osmolality so the amount of sodium this level of sodium in your blood the relative concentration of it and when you know how much sweat and sodium you're losing through you know, through sweating out and when you know how much fluid you're replacing if you ignore some other things you can sort of put those numbers into a mathematical modeling and model out at what point you would theoretically dilute your blood sodium levels down to a level that becomes dangerous or suboptimal and so it's a, at its core like any model it's like it's a valid it, it it's based on a valid model it's based on a lot of assumptions all models have to be um and it it prioritizes the idea that maintaining plasma osmolality is the most important thing. So, and we know that maintaining plasma osmolality is a really important thing because your body defends it vigorously. And if you fall, if you go hyper or hyponatremic, the so high sodium or low sodium in the blood, the, the to varying degrees, the physiological consequences of that can be quite negative and then it can be quite catastrophic. So it's it's got lots of it's got a lot going for it. I think that it does, as I said, it makes a lot of assumptions. So some of those assumptions are going to be overly simplistic. Um, But one of the, and and one of the, one of the, the things that it does do brilliantly actually, is it highlights the fact that an important factor, which we don't talk about enough is the percentage of fluid, total fluid replacement is very influential in how much or when you need to start start taking sodium. So typically we've thought about, you know, if someone's got a high sweat sodium concentration, they should probably need to replace more sodium than someone who hasn't. But that's based on the assumption that they're also having to replace a high amount of total fluid loss. Mm -hmm. And the flip side, which can be equally confusing, is that if an athlete has a relatively low sodium concentration in their sweat, but is sweating a lot and has to replace a very high fraction of their total sweat losses through because they're sweating a lot over many, many hours of exercise, then they might need more sodium than someone else who's replacing a lower fraction, even though their sweat sodium is low. So I haven't explained that brilliantly and and it's a difficult concept to get your head around, but I suppose can be summarized by saying, you know, the more total sweat you lose and the more of a, the higher percentage of that sweat loss you need to replace, then the more important it becomes to to add sodium to your drinks or take sodium alongside your drinks because that enables you to maintain plasma osmolality. And the way that people lose a lot of sweat, speaking obviously, is either you've got a very high sweat rate or it's, which is probably, well, is driven by things like genetics and environmental conditions, and or is exercising for a very long amount of time. So immediately in our world, that applies to like a large majority of people because we're dealing with people who exercise for long periods if they're fit at relatively high intensity, often in a a warm or hot environment because they've come to talk to you about hydration. The, The problems I have with the way the paper's been dissected and I guess sort of structured in terms of how it's been presented to people is that A, 
it's like, well, most people who are exercising don't fall into these categories where they're having to replace a high fraction of their sweat losses, more than 70% of their sweat losses. Well, if you take the population at large, that's true. If you take the niche that we work with, that's demonstrably untrue. You know, we work with people who need to replace a high fraction of their sweat losses all the time because the typical person I'm working with is doing the Hawaii Ironman or a stage of the Tour de France or a, a 50 mile or 100 mile ultra running race. So although you could argue in the population, they're the niche, they're not in our world. So it's un, I think it's unfair to characterize this as, well, most people don't fall into this category, which is how I've heard it described quite a lot. Like most people that we work with do have to drink a lot of fluid because they're losing a lot of fluid over a lot of hours and then the second thing that i don't think the model emphasizes or takes into account is the fact that maintaining plasma volume is also important as maintaining osmolality because you can maintain plasma osmolality by not drinking a lot even when you're sweating a lot because as you drink some but sweat out more you know you replace a fraction of your fluid losses none of your sodium plasma volume contracts but your plasma osmolality stays within the green zone so when you're exercising i would argue it's important to maintain plasma volume so therefore drinking more than the minimum required to maintain plasma osmolality is often going to be sensible for people and you want to add so then you're going to want to add some sodium and then I guess another criticism would be this kind of, well, you only, only this, it's been presented as this, this, all of it, the data is presented in such a way that it paints a picture that only a small amount of people need to replace sodium a small amount of the time. Mm -hmm. There's no discussion about yeah, plasma volume maintenance. There's no discussion around the fact that replacement of some sodium has like basically no downside and, mm -hmm potentially has an upside because of helping to maintain plasma volume. So why would athletes be discouraged from doing something which might often have an upside, but has no major downside. Um, and also there's this kind of ambiguity around it all, because how do athletes know what replacing 60% of their losses looks like versus 70% where there's a theoretical cut up, right. you know, how many athletes have got all of these inputs all of the time to work this stuff out. So if you're not sure in a situation, you feel like you're drinking a lot and like taking an attitude where I don't need to replace sodium mm -hmm. well, I could, but I'm just not going to bother seems to be a weird decision. Like in life, I would always, if someone came, came up to me and said, you know, I've got this proposition, which has got quite a lot of upside and basically no downside. Um, do you fancy doing it? I'm going to go, well, yeah um that that honestly you you i'm sure well you may you can tell me you may have detected it or not i feel like there's a a presentation of all of that information in order to create a narrative that suggests that we don't need to take sodium very much totally totally and that is certainly the attitude that i've seen come back from athletes who've yeah. read the or interacted with it and i've yeah. even had who've then gone back on you know tried and tested nutrition plans that have worked for them and then come back full circle because they've gone oh i did try that with no sodium and mm -hmm. I didn't recover very well got cramps yeah. 
Well, and that's my worry, right? Is is that you know, and, and Alan did a did a blog post on Asker Eukendrup's uh, My Sports Science website, and and there is like a little, you know, it's 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 a nice looking graphic, by the way. Uh, great job, Asker. Um, but with that, there's like this flow chart, and this is what worries me is because it starts with you know defining exercise duration. Okay, so if you if you train for under four hours or more than four hours, then it takes you to the next step, right? Oh, okay. Well, what is your hourly sweat rates? Okay, well maybe they know it, maybe they don't. Although, you know, looking at this sweat rate, that's a, that's a high sweat rate. Like even for me who has, like, I have a really high sweat rate. This is pretty high. This is just, uh, just under two liters an hour, you know, and, and some people like to your point, they're not going to be there. Right. But that's, that's phase two of this flow chart. Then it gets into, well, yeah, how much fluid are you replacing? And then finally, what is your sweat sodium? Right. So like in my mind, it does kind of set some athletes up for failure because they may see, oh, well, I'm exercising less than four hours. There's no reason I need to even think about sodium, right? And I think that does set, there's some problems with that for sure, especially with different types of athletes, even if we're not targeting endurance athletes, right? They're just, that's what got me. And I'm, I'm glad you kind of brought some light to that because I just, I'm still scratching my head with this. I get what they're where they're going with this, but I personally still have a problem because I think it's very confusing. And I'm glad that you said athletes are coming to you having tried some of this and actually not being successful because it shows number one, how much N of one does matter. Number two, how much testing both from a sweat rate and a sweat sodium concentration is absolutely necessary. What I really like that you brought out, because I don't think athletes hear it a lot is we need to look at the fluid that we replace, right? It's just, you know, I mean, I'm sure, Andy, you've seen this too, and you hear this all the time, like, oh, you know, I'm going out for a couple hours. Yeah, I'm not going to really focus on my hydration. I'll drink if I want to, like, whatever. But they're not thinking, it's not in their mind, right? So that's, again, sorry, I'm going off on a, on a whim, but I think this flow chart, while we've got some some good I, I think it's going to really propel where where we're going with this. I think right now it's it's a bit of confusion for athletes in real life. Absolutely. I think I think one analogy which is worth bringing into this is that if you've read anything in the kind of economics literature, uh, and I'm no, I don't mean like the the sort of um, pit, the, the 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 hardcore stuff, but like the popular yeah. science books on economics. Like uh, I'm trying to think of the some of the Tim Harford and these kind of mm-hmm. that write a lot of good sensible stuff for the lay person to understand they they always cite the fact that there's that for years economics chased like models of how the economy should function based on different assumptions you know assumptions about people acting rationally and acting in their best interests and doing this and doing that and then a whole new field came so these mathematical models predicted what would happen in economic situations and then it was proven in real life they just didn't work you know and and that's because in that then then this field of behavioral economics came along, which described much more accurately the way people behave because it looked at real life situations and reverse engineered then mm-hmm. the economics of those situations. And I think there's kind of a to- there's a totally apt analogy there with what's going on here, which is that we what we do is try to look at what athletes do in the field mm-hmm. and then reverse engineer how that works and why they might be doing it. Because I can tell you working with this, these guys at Lotto Destiny Cycling Team, they spend all day, every day doing everything they can, looking under every rock to figure out how to be better at what they do. And when it comes down to you know nutrition, what do they do? Nutrition and hydration, they eat lots of carbohydrates. I'm talking about when they're on the bike now. And yeah. 
the whole around the bike thing is a, is a separate topic to a degree but when they're on the bike they eat tons of carbohydrate as much as they can basically every hour they drink a lot of fluid like again almost getting on for like as much as they can and when they drink a lot of fluid they take an escalating amount of sodium with that fluid because it helps and they do that a little bit in proportion to their individual losses so they categorize riders as like high or medium or low and they they have different ratios of of um you know they have some bottles with sodium and carbs and some bottles with just carbs if you're a light sweater you drink the carb bottles if you're a heavy sweater you drink more of the sodium and carb bottles like and these are people for whom these people the great thing about looking at people at the high performance end of sport is that they try things and test them and they adopt them and if they work they keep doing them and if they don't work they get exited out the back door pretty quickly right and you know across the board that's what these guys are doing you know and and so when sometimes these models or it's not easy to make make the models fit but if you look at what successful athletes are doing you learn a lot of clues in the direction that things should be going and for me you know there are and and, and part of maybe what what um alan mccubbin and to an ex to an extent people like asker are trying to do is they they're maybe overcompensating for what they see as like people having oversold electrolyte mm. products over the years because in the mass market they're oversold for definite they're, they're held up as you know being more essential than they really are and we have to be very clear that when we're talking about this it's to a niche of people you know that that are doing very very long hard hot endurance events but for those people this is this goes from being like not helpful to to essential right totally bob you know this this idea that when you throw a counterpoint in like that athletes don't read into the nuance often what they'll do is they'll take the simple message that comes out the other side and that that message has been crafted to be sodium's not important yeah it has been for a few years now i've I've kind of felt yeah Yeah. so yeah it is it is what it is at the moment and still i think that where what we still see, which is great, is a willingness for a lot of athletes to go out and test stuff in the field. Because at the end of the day, we're all out there most days doing pushing our bodies, doing stuff. And we, you know, we figure out whether if you drop sodium and feel no ill effects and continue to perform at your best and everything's great, then you you are probably someone who didn't require a lot. On the other hand, if you have been taking a lot of sodium and you stop taking it and your performance starts to deteriorate and all this, of course you're going to reintroduce it or you should be reintroducing it it's you know yeah. and everyone's entitled to do that very simple end of one experiment and come to their own personal conclusion on that thank you andy for uh walking us through that um i was just thinking of a couple things here as it relates to the warmer weather and especially here in the northern hemisphere um i mean the importance of learning our sweat rate and and as you're saying, kind of experimenting for ourselves and documenting what we're doing, but um, with with warmer conditions and knowing some, especially ultra athletes are out there in the racing in the desert or other conditions where there might be extreme heat or other conditions here where hydration plays such an important role. Could you give a few insights as to hydration in those scenarios. And also I'm just wondering if there, if you have found there are certain individuals or categories of athletes that 
tend to be more prone to heat exhaustion or heat stress? Is that just related to their strategy of hydration and sodium replenishment and cooling? Yeah. No, heat heat stress is obviously that's that is a the one that comes onto everyone's mind around this time of year when we start going back to races in in summer conditions and starting with that i suppose what are the characteristics of people that suffer heat injuries or heat stress problems and that kind of thing there there's a number of things that you can look out for you know like younger people like young kids or athletes mm. are often more at risk for various reasons um some of it, it with the very young people it's because they don't sweat as much actually often so they don't cool as effectively they also probably a little bit less aware of where their thermal limits lie you know kids if you've got kids you know they tear around in the heat like like it's a cool day and they don't realize how hot they are until they have no they have much they have a less well-developed sense of pacing on the other side like dogs yeah exactly yeah yeah so they're just overcooked um (laughs) when the other extreme is when we get a heat wave or something like that, what's the part of the population everyone's concerned about? And that's old people, you know, so older athletes generally are going to suffer more in extreme heat than um, younger athletes uh, than, than or, or more sort of like, you know, normal athletic age individuals, middle, middle age individuals, probably because partly at least because they're, um, they've got less total body water. Um, also they they might have less well-developed sense of thirst their thirst is going to diminish a little bit so they need to be a bit more careful about how much they drink um, other other red flags though are do apply to more competitive athletes like athletes who can move faster who can push themselves harder who are more highly motivated and are more likely to push through pain you know basically the, the the guys and girls at the very sharp end of the field who are very fit they can produce more heat because they can move more quickly they they are better adapted to the heat often, but they're also highly motivated. You know, when you see athletes collapse, it's often when they're near the front of a race and they are pushing themselves really, really hard because they're pushing through this, the early signals of like what, what is becoming a heat injury. Um, so they they can be in that risk group. Also un, unacclimated individuals. So people who've gone to a race from a cooler climate who haven't had time to prepare so we see that occasionally and it didn't happen this year because it rained and it was cold but in the london marathon if it's mm. it's 23 celsius which is about as hot as it can get at that time of year it might have been five celsius for all of the weeks before and if you get a suddenly warm day that really and people don't adjust their pacing plans and they're not used to it then that can throw a spanner in the works so every every individual situation is a bit different but you know, you've got to respect the heat and, you know, I always say to if, if athletes ask me if they've not raced in the heat a lot before and they come to us talking about hydration, and I always say that, you know, obviously being mindful of hydration and electrolyte replacement and things like that are really important in the heat. But one of the biggest things is management of your expectations around pacing is probably the most important thing if you're mm-hmm. going to not fail in the heat. Because if you go out and try and run or bike or whatever like you you would in normal environmental conditions and it's 10 or 15 degrees hotter than you're used to then then you're at risk yeah for sure it's it's such a delicate situation isn't it i mean in those in those instances i mean take us through if, if you don't mind like as we finish up here we know obviously the products that you have um 
you know, we, we wholeheartedly appreciate what you're doing, but, you know, you talked about these certain groups, right. And how would you, how would you like talk us through your new products, number one, right. But how would you recommend those for some of these, I guess, more at risk populations for some heat stress or heat exhaustion? I think the, with, when people are preparing to exercise in the heat, the most appropriate sports nutrition products for them to use are probably the, the low, the lower calorie or the hypotonic sports mm. drinks that are either electrolyte tablet form, so basically zero calories, or the low sugar hypotonic drink mixes and those kind of things, because the priority in the heat is getting enough volume of fluid in to replace a reasonable amount of your sweat losses without diluting per the kind of McCubbin model and all of that without um, diluting your blood sodium levels and without dropping your blood volume too much so by default in the heat you're much more likely to need to drink a higher volume so hypotonic with a, a high amount of electrolytes tends to be the best choice and then the thing I would say is that people shouldn't underestimate the use of those in the immediate build-up to exercise in the heat because we know from past papers on the subject that a reasonable amount of athletes actually do turn up to um, training, training more than racing, but training, you know, quite, quite dehydrated some of the time. And actually it doesn't really matter what you drink during an exercise. If you turned up on the back foot, when it comes to hydration, then you're, you're setting yourself up for problems. So I think using hydration products in the immediate buildup so that you make sure that you're amply hydrated, not overhydrated. You haven't just drunk ridiculous amounts and not loads of plain water and flushed the electrolytes mm. out your body. But you know, drunk some stronger electrolyte products, lo- lower calorie, because you're not going to need the carbs with them at that point. Is mm. is a really that from from the products that we make, and that's the typical way we'd recommend it. And it's the same with athletes that are traveling and that and that sort of thing. You know, those products are probably most suitable. Whereas the right. the We've we've now got a drink mix, a carbohydrate drink mix, PF60. We've got another carbohydrate drink mix coming out um, later this year that you can mix up much stronger. It's got no electrolytes in it. It's just carbohydrates. And we've tested it up to 120 grams of carbs per liter, which is a 12% solution. And for those kind of things are exactly not what you'd want to be drinking when you're just sitting around because they're effectively all of the bad stuff in your, in your diet that you don't right. need. You're, they're, they're perfect when you're ferociously burning calories on this, doing whatever you're doing, but they're not appropriate when you're, yeah. unless you were carb loading, maybe, you know, just. But you would need to take a, le- would your recommendation be take electrolytes with that also, depending on the athlete? It, it depends actually. I mean, we, so the, the carbohydrate only product that we've developed was we've been testing with our ambassadors and in conjunction with Lotto specifically has mm-hmm. been to, to give a bigger contribution of carbohydrates without the electrolytes for those that, so that most of those athletes that are using it would use it alongside an electrolyte product. But if you were drinking, say some of those guys are drinking three bottles an hour and right. they, a, a heavy sweater or a heavy salt sweater would drink two of the bottles with electrolytes and one with carb. Whereas the, someone with who's a light sweater might only have one bottle of the electrolyte drink and two bottles of the carbohydrate only. So they're just not getting an overdose of sodium compared with what. Gotcha. So I love rather, that. That's a great message. Rather than thinking about it in relation to what's in every single bottle being the same, it's like over six hours, I might drink, just going to pull a figure, but just, I might drink 12 bottles. If I'm a heavy salty sweater, I might drink eight of those or nine of those might be electrolyte drink mix. Mm -hmm. If I'm a 
low salt sweater, I might only have three with electrolytes in. And that, that way over the whole period, I get a decent, uh, you know, overall mixture in for me, but it's different to what another person is. You don't have to have a tailored product because in a long event, you can have a suite of products that, and, a, and a list right. of give you a diff, slightly different recipe. So we're trying to build. It's yes, brilliant. It's brilliant. Build out our range so that it makes it as flexible as, as possible. Right. Oh gosh, Andy, uh, thank you so much for the insights and perspectives. As always, you bring a renewed appreciation for the science and application and, and real life stuff related to hydration and and electrolyte replenishment, as well as the fueling, although I know we didn't focus so much on that here today, but uh, just wanted to thank you so much for uh, helping all of us stay on top of it. And I'm sure we'll get a lot more questions. Um, is there anything though that we we didn't quite get to that you wanted to be sure to mention? No, I, th- I, I think we covered, we covered some really good stuff and I, I know thank you for the for putting some really thoughtful questions together. And I know that we we generally have quite a lot of alignment in the way that we think about th- these things. I know that you guys like us, and I think some of that comes from the fact that you guys work very closely with lots and lots of athletes um, at the at the cold face of you know doing the sport, the endurance sports that they do. And that definitely does give you a bit of a different perspective to people who are more entirely research focused and mm-hmm. and i don't you know i think that research is incredibly important it's why we're part you know we're trying to put some funds behind doing it but i also think it has its limitations and compared with you know compared with working with practitioners you know i think the science stuff and the evidence base keeps practitioners on their toes and keeps them honest because it means that you've got to keep up to date with with what's going on theoretically but at the same time sometimes i'm not always sure the information from the field flows back enough mm-hmm. into the the lab environment and sometimes the constraints of the lab environment aren't conducive you know ethics is there for good reason to protect people but i had i would i would have loved with our phd study to be putting people through eight hours in the heat chamber but you just yeah. can't, <laughs> you can't reliably do it and then you would have find <laughs> lots of there's lots of barriers to that sort of stuff so the next best thing is like what you guys are doing and what we're doing with the athletes we work is 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 actually trying to like do a little bit of testing with people in the field and getting feedback and iterating and with your things like your podcast at least we get to talk about that and other people can listen and don't expect everyone to agree with me or with with us i guess or what, what yeah. we're talking about but at least it it allows a different perspective and you know it, it would totally. be great it would be great to hear from people who've listened to this and listened to your stuff. If they've got questions, we do one-to-one video calls with athletes for free. If they want to hit our website and do that, we've got blogs on there and yeah, would love to. You will put all this in the show notes listeners, but I mean, seriously, his website is phenomenal resource. And that's, that's so kind for you to, you know, give that one-on-one too for athletes. Cause I do, there's so much floating around there, but you know, listeners, uh, I can already visualize a part three with Andy, uh, and a lot on, I, I really want to hit what you finished up with, with like the carbohydrate specific drink and kind of tailoring and fine tuning. Cause I don't think a lot of athletes really think of their races that way. If they're longer distance, they just think of everything is the same in the bottle and every bottle is a replicate of this, the, the bottle before that. Right. So Definitely a part three moving in. Uh, we'll let you, we'll let you get through your season though, because it sounds like you're going to have a really busy summer. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's going to be busy out there. But um, no, thanks. thanks. And um, yeah, really nice to catch up with both of you. Thank you for the invite. You too. You too. Absolutely. And we look forward to the next time, Andy. And thank you again, listeners. Stay tuned uh, for the show notes. But again, if you do have questions, just send us a note. Hello at InsideSportsNutrition.com. And we'll make sure to either answer them or pass them on to our expert or just, you know, ask Andy on our next podcast. So thanks everyone for listening. Thank you, Andy, for your time. And thank you, Dina, for being an awesome co-host. We will see you on the next episode. We hope you enjoyed that conversation with Andy Blow of the Precision Fuel and Hydration Company. Head over to insidesportsnutrition.com slash episodes to find the show notes and get all of the links for the info that we talked about in this conversation today. And thanks again for listening and following along. Stay tuned for next week's episode. Bob and I are sitting down to chat about mm, carbs and sugar for fueling and for everyday nutrition. There's a lot of hot debates out there in terms of using any and all sugar to fuel or do we have some choices to make different decisions with the kind of carbs and sugar that we use for fueling it's an interesting conversation so hopefully you will catch us for that one remember to drop us a note over at hello at inside sportsnutrition.com if you've got a question for us we've got an ask us anything episode in the works And we always appreciate your support in promoting this podcast. So if you find the information beneficial and useful to you in your quest for improving health and performance, please give us a five-star rating over on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It does help us grow and continue to share the content with other listeners like yourself around the world. We'd love to connect with you on social as well. Connect with Bob over at Energy Performance on Instagram or the website energyperformance.com, E-N-R-G performance.com or myself, Dina. You can find me on Instagram, Nutrition Mechanic or head over to the nutritionmechanic.com website. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are solely those of the hosts and the guests involved and do not represent a replacement for medical consultation with your doctor. The information and opinions provided here are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease or medical condition. This podcast is for information, education, and entertainment purposes only. 